All right. <laughs> okay. All right. There's always a bit of uh, trepidation when we begin <laughs> this uh, sharing screen. Okay, so again, we're still in our series on, on majoring on the minors. And this week we have Joel. By the way, I'll just say it now because uh, last week we forgot to make the announcement. Next week is going to be Jonah. So if you're reading ahead, and that is always helpful because there's so much material to cover, next week is Jonah. So Joel, uh, there he is on our little picture there. Uh, you going to introduce Joel? You want me to say? Yeah. Okay. So we're gonna. So we're we're looking at Joel. Who was Joel? And broad overview of the book. Um, we don't know about Joel from any other book. So the answer is we don't know. Um, he's not mentioned in um, in any other book, but um, he's preaching in Judah and Jerusalem, and. Um, Basically, his book is laid out in three or four different um, prophecies. We call them oracles. Um, um, so uh, the first oracle talks about um, a plague on the land. Um, there's a resulting drought, and then there's just a desolation of the land. Um, and this uh, culminates in a call to lament and repent. Um, then there is an oracle on a short oracle on the promise of God's spirit at a time of um, forgiveness and restoration. And then the final oracle has to do with the day of the Lord, which is kind of building up through the book, the day of the Lord. And then in um, the final chapter, which in our English Bibles is chapter three, but in the Hebrew is um, chapter four. So, um, uh, Joel in uh, the Hebrew Bible is actually four chapters and um, the promise of the spirit, uh, those like four or five verses are one chapter in and of themselves or chapter three. So the fourth chapter <clears throat> our third of Joel is a culmination of the judgment of all nations by the Lord. Okay. So, uh, I just decided, you know, it's probably helpful as we're talking about all these different prophets to sort of say, okay, so what do you remember if you hear the name Joel, you know, uh, or you hear Obadiah, right? When, when you hear Obadiah, you should be thinking judgment on Edom and the strained relationships between Jacob and Esau um, and, and how that relates to the, uh, God's promise to Abraham. With respect to Joel, then, obviously, the, the most obvious thing is a locust plague. And I've got a picture here. And we're actually going to show a little video. I don't know if we'll watch the whole thing. But we've got a video of, uh, from a documentary about locust plagues just to sort of get us in the mood of thinking about what, what did Joel see and what does he discuss. The other, of course, the other key concept is one that we're going to see in a lot of the minor prophets, and that is the day of the Lord. So locust plague and day of the Lord. And these two concepts are actually interrelated in, uh, in the book of Joel. Go ahead. Okay. Just making sure you're not. Uh, okay, so <clears throat> starting out, we're, we'll talk briefly, very briefly, about a couple of scholarly debates. 
Um, and there are two. One is the dating of Joel, like when was it written? When did Joel live? There was even some debate about whether Joel uh, uttered the whole prophecy himself or if something was added later. So your more conservative scholars, um, and I think are rightly, believe that the whole book is one. It was always one, and it was all given by uh, the prophet named Joel. Uh, but some more liberal scholars have struggled with the last part of Joel because it does, in, in chapter 3, it does shift focus a bit, and, um, and that's going to relate to dating as well. The second debate is whether or not when Joel is discussing in chapters 1 and 2 this locust swarm, if he shifts to discussion of a, an actual invasion by a human army, um, so he uses this imagery or he uses this discussion of the locust plague to actually talk about an, in, an invading army or a possible invasion or not. Um, or is it all just a locust swarm? So what about the dating? So some, some have argued for a late date after the exile, and usually they do that because they think that some of the discussion in chapter 3 could only have been written by someone who knew more than what someone who lived before uh, the Babylonian exile would have known. They also would look at uh, things like there's no king mentioned, and uh, a lot of times the prophets will say, in, in this year of this king's reign in Judah or in Israel, so-and-so, the prophet, uh, received a word from the Lord. And we don't have that in Joel, which, of course, creates some of the problem for dating. But uh, it, it's most likely written during Uzziah's reign. As you see there, I've given you the dates between some, sometime between 770 and 750 B.C. It might be uh, Joash's reign uh, because Joash... Uh, was a child king, and so he wasn't really the one ruling at the time. Um, but it seems like Uzziah's reign makes the most sense because of the political situation Joel seems to describe. Uh, so at that time, Assyria had risen to power, had defeated Egypt, and established vassal relationships with a number of um, the states in the Middle East at the time. But its power had begun to wane, and Uzziah rises up as sort of a regional leader. Um, but Assyria is going to, again, when they get a more powerful king, it's going to emerge as, again, a strong power uh, in the region and, of course, internationally. And ultimately, later, it's going to invade the northern kingdom, Israel, and destroy the city, the capital city of Samaria, and carry the people off into captivity. That happens in 722. So the, I guess the important thing for us to note here on the dating is that uh, if we're right in saying it's during Uzziah's reign, then you still have the northern and southern kingdoms. Assyria has been a threat, but it's not at the moment. But it's going to be later, and this is all before the, uh, the, the northern kingdom is carried into captivity. So this question of an invading army, is, is Joel's discussion in chapter 2, does it shift to, to uh, 
a warning of a possible invasion of a human army that will come and bring devastation. And his discussion of the locusts and the devastation that locust swarm brings is really a way of introducing or discussing um, a more even devastating uh, event of a human army. And I'm gonna, we're going to argue that um, obviously Joel does describe a, an actual locust plague, but he sees in it a portent of a, of a future enemy invasion uh, that he's warning about, as well as a vision of the end of the age. So what evidence is there? There's, there's quite a bit of evidence, actually. The language shifts at the beginning of chapter 2 in verses 1 through 11 to describe a human army, and then it shifts back to locusts in verses 12 through 19, and then a human army again in verse 20. And again, so what we see in Joel's vision is we, ha we see um, uh, – and it, sort of a, a back and forth between his discussion or his description of a locust plague and a human invading army and then a future event. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. So it's like he starts with the locusts and then the imagery kind of blurs into an invading army of real soldiers. So let me just offer a little bit of the evidence that he is talking about an actual human, in, human army invading um, in the future. So if you look at chapter 2, verse 1, it begins with the statement, blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy hill. Normally, the blowing of a trumpet in ancient Israel was a call to arms, a warning that an army has appeared, and it's to uh, awaken the soldiers or the men of fighting age to come forth. Um, also in verse 8, and I've, I've sort of listed these others here, in verse 8, the text says that the invaders advance forward despite uh, facing a volley of spears and arrows. So some English translations will simply say they advance through defenses, but really the Hebrew is more specific to talk about spears and arrows, and those would be pretty ineffective, spears and arrows would, be pretty ineffective against locusts, right? You wouldn't be throwing spears at locusts to try and stop them. Um, in verse 9, the text suggests that the worst part of the assault is when the army breaches the wall of the city and enters private homes um, uh, of the Judeans. And I think this suggests an actual army because a locust swarm's worst damage is going to be outside the city in the fields, right? But an actual army entering private homes represents total defeat, slaughter, and um, even defilement of the people. Um, also, there's, this is something we don't, it's not as clear in most English translations, but there's a shift in tense in the Hebrew from Joel 1, where it's in the perfect tense, or past completion, to imperfect tense in Joel 2, which points again to a future fulfillment. In verse 20, the invader is described as coming from the north. Locust plagues typically came from the south, and all the prophets uh, warned of northern invaders like the Assyrians and the Babylonians uh, as a judgment of God, and all of this is interpreted, this locust swarm and then this possible future invasion, are in, they're interpreted as the judgment of God upon 
Judah. Uh, we could also, if we had time, we could go back and look at Deuteronomy 28, where Moses is uh, giving his final speech before the people, before he goes off to the mountain to die and the people enter the promised land. And in Deuteronomy 28, uh, he warns, uh, if you if you turn from the Lord and worship other gods and follow the practices of the people of the land in which you're about to inhabit, then there will be some very negative consequences. In, in chapter 28, verse 38, so Deuteronomy 28, 38, he specifically mentions locust swarms as a, uh, as a, a judgment from God. Um, and then later in that same chapter in verse 49, he mentions an invading army that's going to come in and uh, carry your people away and uh, create such devastation that atrocities will be, uh, will be performed by the people. So, uh, and in fact, if you read Deuteronomy uh, 28 along with um, Lamentations, it reads very much like Lamentations is the fulfillment of these warnings of Deuteronomy 28. And so here, Joel is warning. He's, he's picking up on this warning of Moses, and he's warning the people that this could be the same thing. So can I, can I just say one thing? Yeah. Um, so uh, in Joel, um, as he's prophesying against uh, Judah and Jerusalem, he doesn't, he doesn't specify... Um, sins that they had committed or like why this plague is coming or why the invaders are coming. And so um, we have to sort of assume from his language that there was some kind of covenant breaking. Um, it's just not specified um, in Joel. Um, but we kind of assume because he's talking about um, things that are paralleled in Deuteronomy and then also in, um, I think, Leviticus um, 26 that we looked at a couple weeks ago. Excuse me, but doesn't chapter 3 list several of the sins? Um, that is against um, the nation that is, oh, is okay. coming against them. Yeah, you're, actually, you're right. Yes, you're right. So, though, so God does lay out a case um, against, against those nations that have um, committed atrocities against his people, but we don't have specifics of what Joel, like it doesn't say, you know, you've turned from the Lord or you have um, worshipped idols. It's not explicit like it is in some of the other prophets. But yes, good observation. Okay, so... Oh, here we go. Now, so this is a video from the BBC, a National Geographic uh, documentary of locust, locust plague. Um, See how that kind of swarm <laughs> can produce the sort of desolation of the land and the kind of drought then that uh, Joel describes here in chapter one. Yeah, several billion strong, 40 miles wide. And uh, and in in the beginning of Joel's prophecy, he says this is this particular locust swarm that he's referring to is like one that no one has seen before, right? So it was particularly devastating. But if you think about it, so he lays out, you know, who should who is affected by 
this swarm. And uh, I've listed them there, the drunkards. So the plague serves, if you think of it, it, it serves as a disruption in the life of Judah. Not only a disruption to frivolous and unimportant activity like drinking and revelry, but also key life events like weddings and marriages in uh, verse 8, for example. It also devastates the economy, right? This this plague devastated their economy. It was an agrarian economy, and it threatens the very lives of the Judeans. And last, it challenged uh, it challenges the temple worship because the failure of crops means no wine offerings, no grain offerings, and very few few herd animals for sacrifice. And so Joel, Joel calls the people, uh, the priests in particular to mourn over, um, over this reality, right? Like the inability to worship the Lord should be devastating to the community. It should be. And if it's not, there's something wrong spiritually with the people, right? And so, I, you know, it just sort of caused me to think about our own, you know, situation here where we have it threatening, of course, revelry and, you know, unimportant things, but it also is threatening businesses, the economy, people's very lives, their health, and it's threatened our worship as well, our communal worship. Um, and it's in this context, right, in this context that Joel calls for self-reflection and repentance if needed, right, and a call to holiness, right? This is what he calls the people to. And so when we think about the theological meaning of the plague and Joel's call, you know, we have to think of it as there is a judgment of God and it's, it's it, on, on the nation, right? But also on a personal level, there's a call for us for introspection and self-reflection. Well, so we wanted to talk a little bit about the literary structure. Some of this is going to be like highfalutin seminary stuff. Um, we don't want to bore you with it too much, but it's kind of interesting, and we'll, we'll sort of explain it briefly, and maybe we'll come back to it another day as well. But as I've already said, there's a lot of interplay between the immediate uh, events, right, the, the locust plague, the potential near future of a, of, a, of a possible enemy invasion, and then distant future, final judgment kinds of things when Jesus returns. I mean, that Jesus isn't mentioned in Joel, but a final judgment uh, and one that is cataclysmic. Um, well, okay, so some commentators think that, that this is realized, girls, um, some people think that that the literary structure includes something called a chiasm. Uh, it's some it's a somewhat complicated structure, but what it is is it's a literary tool used in poetry, where several points get repeated, but in such a way that the repetition the repetition forms something of a parentheses around a very important point. And so I've shown you sort of the structure there with A and A prime at the bottom and B and B prime and then C in the middle of it. And uh, the A's are parallel ideas. Uh, and then, um, then the, the B's same are goes parallel ideas. And then C is the most important idea that they all point to. So in chapters one and two, then it may be that there's a chiasm here and I've sort of laid it out there for you. So you see at the beginning in chapter one, a, 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 
uh, a proclamation of divine punishment, and the punishment is the locust plague. And then a little bit later, at, uh, in the beginning of chapter 2, you have divine punishment with this northern army coming in. And, and the divine punishment of locusts in 1, 2 through 20 corresponds to divine forgiveness later at the end of chapter 2, where God restores the locust-ravaged land. And then the divine punishment at the beginning of chapter 2 corresponds to something a little bit earlier in chapter 2 than the, the promise of restoring the land, where God says he's going to vanquish that northern army. And in the middle of all of that is where you have sort of what we might call the key point of Joel, where he has this call to repent and turn to the Lord, right? So um, you have, so the, the, the key in those two chapters to be found in two, nine, uh, 12 through 19 with verses 12 through 17 being a call to true heartfelt repentance. And just to read uh, verses 12 and 13, he says, Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping, and mourning. And then a, a pretty famous verse here, rend your heart, like tear your heart open, not your garments. It kind of reminds me of the Pharisees, right, with their sort of false piety when, when Jesus declares himself before them uh, as the, the son of man who you'll see coming on the clouds, the, the chief priest rips his garments open. Oh, you know, I'm offended by this when they're, when they're engaged in blasphemy all the time in their actions, right? And so Joel says this. And then, uh, and then um, the second part uh, uh, with uh, verses 18 and 19 being a declaration of God's merciful and gracious response. So in 2.18, it says, the Lord will be, and, and here's the interesting thing, right? He'll be zealous for his land, right? So not only restore the land, but he's zealous for his land. And remember, land was part of the covenant promise to Abraham, right? And then he will have pity on his people. So again, hearkening back to uh, Moses's intercession, where he says, you know, they won't be a reproach to the nations, and hearkening back to God's covenant promises through Abraham. So the next, the next slide, I'm just going to leave it up there. You can sort of look at it, and maybe, you know, if you're really interested, you can look at the video later. Uh, but this is even, even within the A's, there's even more chiasm present. So it kind of goes through a number of parallels there that work their way outward. So chiasm sort of starts with the center and it's like it's working outward, even though when you read it, it's like reading through these parallels. All right, so no time to, to go through that. And it's probably, this is like advanced seminary here. So what about the prophecy of Joel? Well, we, we the first part of Joel is pretty straightforward, right? His description of the, of the locust swarm and um, his call to repentance in uh, chapter 2. I would just say this, when we get to 2.18 through 27, Joel's proclamation of God's grace, in verses 26 and 27, we see some, uh, as I said, covenant language. You have the Lord is going to drive out 
the invader, right? God is going to fight for you, and uh, he will heal the land, and Israel will be called my people. Um, and then there's a promise, and it occurs twice in these two verses, a promise of everlasting honor, everlasting honor, which, again, we're looking at this potential future invasion, um, which we know, by the way, for Judah didn't occur, if, at least if it's talking about Assyria, it never fully occurred or it wasn't fully realized because God prevented uh, the Assyrian army from taking Jerusalem. Why? Because the people repented. Right. And so we'll see this in um, in the prophets as well. Sometimes a prophecy of doom is contingent. It's 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 offered as something that's going to happen in the future. But there's a contingency included there that if you repent, God may or will relent and not realize its full power. And um, so this, this uh, promise of everlasting honor points even further into the future. In 28 through 31, um, here we have a, a, a very interesting section because it seems like it's fulfilled or begun to be fulfilled in the new covenant with Jesus in Acts 2, 1 through 36. In Peter's speech, Peter says this is, uh, he quotes from uh, verses 28 through 31 in, uh, in Acts 2 and says this is being realized um, at this time with the pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost, but also hearkening back. You know, Peter is pointing back to Jesus' earthly ministry, his death, resurrection, ascension, and his current intercession at the right hand of the Father, right? So there's this multi-stage fulfillment, and then 32 transitions with it will come about in the future as well. Paul quotes from verse 32 in Romans 10, 13, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved as uh, something that's a prophecy or a promise uh, being realized in the church with the entry of Gentiles into the church, but it's also something that points to a future fulfillment when God's promises will be ultimately realized in Israel. And it has that, that promise that God has a remnant that he has reserved in verse 32 as well. So it's interesting as he's talking about this day that's going to come in the future, that it kind of um, alerts us to the fact that um, the day of the Lord, it um, means, you know, like a, a couple of different things. It has a, a positive aspect and a very negative aspect, an aspect of judgment and also an aspect of um, vindication of his people. And in this day that's going to come with the pouring out of God's spirit, it'll be like an, an, an overabundance of the presence of God with his people. And like, it's so much that it, it sort of, it's like it spills out, you know, it spills out past different boundaries that we might um, observe. So the Lord's Spirit will be on the young and the old, on men and women, on slave and free. And then we know from Pentecost where there's this fulfillment that, um, that Peter uh, recognizes that it now over, overflows even to the Gentiles. And so, um, you know, instead of being sort of marked for judgment, as we're going to see in the day of the Lord and the value of decision, in this chapter three of Joel, um, any Gentile who wants to can call in the name of the Lord and, 
and be saved and um, partake of the covenant blessings that are promised to Israel and have the protection of the Lord as, as Judah and Jerusalem and the honor of the Lord, the blessing of the Lord as Judah and Jerusalem have as they're promised um, um, as a, um, you know, keeping faith with uh, the covenant that God has made with them. And we see that unfolding in the book of Acts as well, right? With At Pentecost, you see it with the Jews, and uh, and then you have the Ethiopian eunuch, a eunuch who would normally not be admitted to the temple worship or the tabernacle worship, is now one who can receive the Spirit and uh, and be saved, right? And so then, and then later in Acts, of course, you have, as Stefan said, the entry of Gentiles, and Paul picks up on that as well. Um, Interestingly, also, you have this language of uh, the, the sky turning black and um, blood and fire and columns of smoke, the sun turning into darkness. That occurs uh, at Jesus's death, remember? Um, and you have these wonders being worked by Christ. But also then with the pouring out of the spirit, you have the, the miraculous gifts uh, manifesting in the apostles, and then yet later as well, we'll see that this same language is going to be picked up as uh, ultimately fulfilled at a final day of judgment as well. Um, and that will transition us to chapter three. That's right. So, so here we have the day of the Lord in its most scary aspect. Um, it's scary for the nation. So there will be a promise of restoration for Judah, um, but a judgment of the nations. And um, uh, it recounts the crimes of these, uh, these particular nations that are mentioned. If you um, have looked at your Bible maps at the back, um, you can see that Tyre and Sidon and Philistia, they're all on the coast. So these were all um, this part of the Sea Peoples or Phoenicians, if you can remember that far back when you learned about this in school. Um, and so lots of them were involved in trade um, across the sea with, with Greece um, uh, and uh, with other seafaring kinds of peoples. And they uh, traded slaves. Um, sometimes they sold them for not very much, um, as Joel um, sites here from the Lord. Um, they cast lots from my people. They bartered a boy for a prostitute. They sold a girl for just a drink of wine. Um, and so this is a, a crime that God indicts them with. Um, selling his people, desecrating his land, uh, dividing it up, destroying and looting his city, his treasury. And so um, these people are going to be indicted for these crimes. So then we have this great reversal from this point um, on to the end. So God will reverse what they have done to his people. He'll reverse it on their own heads, as he said. Um, what they've done is going to then uh, happen to them. And then God calls all the nations to prepare for one big war. Um, and the language here is like, you know, um, confused. There's lots of attacking throngs of people, um, just all uh, um, soldiers running together. Like there's chaos, a big confusion. And God is saying, yes, come on, come on. It's, it's time for this. This is coming on you. And uh, I'm going to sit down to judge. Now, um, if you've been to Israel, chances are that you may or may not have seen this Valley of Jehoshaphat because it doesn't actually exist called this 
right, by this name. So it literally means the valley of the judgment, the valley of Yahweh's judgment, right? And so many think that um, this is referring to the valley of Megiddo or the valley of Jezreel, where um, Ezekiel uh, uh, talks about the battle of Armageddon all right. spread out. So this is a, a valley that you might have seen if you've been to Nazareth, just outside of Nazareth, where there's this precipice where um, Jesus was going to be thrown off the, you know, off the cliff. You remember when he, he read out in the synagogue that the Spirit of the Lord was on him? And um, they were going to throw him out. Well, they were going to throw him off at the base of that precipice spreads out in front of you a huge valley of Jezreel. And so if you can imagine um, um, war horses and soldiers and chariots all there together, all these nations coming together that God is kind of like enticing to come there in order for him to wreak judgment on them. Which, which is interesting. So then you say, well, how does God's judgment work? Well, at, at a certain level, it, it's implemented by other people oftentimes or through natural means. And in the case of the war, there's in, if, you, if you compare this to the book of Revelation, which obviously we don't have time to go read through right now, but you have, um, you have armies fighting one another. And in a certain sense, the judgment of God is in that uh, horror of battle, the horror of war, the fog of war, but also uh, in Revelation you have um, uh, miraculous things happening, um, supernatural events or un unnatural, what you might call unnatural events, um, and you have some of this same language in Joel here where the sun and the moon turn to darkness, stars fail to shine in verse 15 and things like that. And in verse 16, he says, the Lord roars. And ultimately, all of this is meant to reveal uh, reveal the Lord. And why? Because Because ultimately what God does is he vindicates his people and he vindicates his own plan or he reiterates his plan through Abraham to ultimately bless all of humanity. Even though there's a lot of judgment here, the end of it all is blessing. And in verse uh, verses 18 through 21, you see there it's a blessing of Israel with the imagery of wine and milk and water flowing from the temple, which, of course, we read of. The, the, there's a river of life flowing out of God's throne, out of his temple in the New Jerusalem in Revelation. So, again, all of this speaks to God's final redemption of Israel. And, uh, as I've written there, the vindication or the fulfillment of his plan in calling Abraham to be the means of blessing humanity and ultimately to restore his creation. Now, just in the last couple of minutes, I thought we ought to think about some things. So these are questions, and they're just questions. I'm not trying to lead you anywhere, although I'm, I'm going to in just a moment. But let me just throw these out there. So things to think about. How do we reconcile God's sovereignty, God's rule, God's governance, with disaster, right? And this is something I've spent quite a bit of my academic career thinking about. But, you know, questions like this, can and does God use plague to get our attention, right? In Joel, you have the locust plague. 
And then how, another question though, is when we think about the book of Joel, we have to ask ourselves, how is Joel's position or situation different from the situation we find ourselves in today, right? With a plague of our own. Another thing to think about is how do we reconcile God's judgment poured out with innocent suffering, right? Um, so question like this, when God judges national sins, does he have an obligation to protect his own people from the suffering that is being poured out on the nation? Is God obligated to do that? Uh, and another question, how should we respond to Joel giving our own context? And let me offer a couple of thoughts very briefly. Yes, sir. So if God is using COVID-19 to call us to repentance, and I'm not saying he necessarily is, but if he is, we should be careful to say that this doesn't mean that any particular persons who die or who suffer were specific targets of his wrath, right? Because that's not how it works in the Bible. And I'll give you an example real quick. God judged Israel for its ungodliness by sending the Babylonian army. And we'll talk about this later in some of the other minor prophets. But the Babylonian army comes against Jerusalem. Everyone in Jerusalem suffers. Everyone in Jerusalem was not guilty of the crimes for which the Babylonians were sent. Because guess who else suffered right alongside them? Jeremiah, who prophesied the whole thing and called the people to repentance. Yet he suffered right alongside everyone else. So uh, it doesn't mean that. Notice I've also said, I think... It's important for us to think about every disaster, whether we're talking about communal disasters like national disasters or even within our own community, these or personal in, in our own lives. They do provide us an occasion for self-reflection, even if it is not an occasion of divine judgment for some specific uh, sin. And oftentimes it is not. That's supposed to say it is often it often is not. So uh, when we lived in Houston, Hurricane Harvey came through and just devastated the city. It was terrible. Um, and I, you know, I just suggested that, you know, this is a time for self-reflection. I'm not saying that God is necessarily judging Houston or Katrina for our friends from New Orleans. It doesn't mean God's necessarily judging them, but it certainly is an occasion for us to reflect on our own lives and how can we be more holy, right? Notice also, and this last one is probably, maybe it should have been first, we should take care and show sensitivity in the midst of community and national crisis. What I mean is, even if I stop for a moment and say, I wonder, you know, I just wonder myself if this COVID-19 is a call for us as a world, as a world population to turn back to God. I certainly think God is always calling us back. Maybe this is an occasion for that. As I reflect on that as an individual, I certainly want to be sensitive to others who are struggling in this time, and I don't want to offend or upset anyone through my own reflection on this. And this is sort of leads into that last point, which is maybe the most important of them all. And that is, we can't say for sure what the meaning of COVID-19 is because we're not prophets like Joel was. 
In other words, Joel could look at the locust plague and he could look at the possible invasion, the potential invasion of Assyria, and he could say, this is a judgment from God. Yeah, it's a naturally occurring event. It's something that might have, you know, we can give a natural ex explanation for why locusts emerge and why they turn into swarms, like David Attenborough said. But at the same time, I can say with confidence, Joel says, that this is a this is a judgment from God. But Joel could only say that because he had divine inspiration from God directly, and we don't, right? We have. We have the Bible, which is God's word given to us, but we don't have divine inspiration like that, right? That we're ready to stake our lives on. And so we should be very careful about pronouncing any kind of uh, divine interpretation of current events. Uh, rather, I think we have to look at current events and say, what is God saying to me? And how can I respond appropriately in this context? And one of those is to always reflect on my own sin and turn from my own sin if I need to, but also respond in love and service to my fellow man, as our church has been striving to do. Yeah. And I think when we see others who are suffering from these kinds of devastations, whether we know or not, you know, if it's a divine judgment or whatever, that it should call us to repentance and to compassion um, yes. towards them and not to take advantage of them. Just like um, in this Joel chapter three, what right. these nations were doing basically was taking advantage of um, nations who had been um, conquered by a bigger nation. And then, you know, in between conquest and kind of the confusion after that sort of conquest, when, when um, like Judah is, is vulnerable or Israel is vulnerable, these nations have kind of come in and, um, you know, captured people and sold them off as slaves. Just like, just like, just like Edom did uh, right. Right. in Obadiah last week. Right. Same yeah. thing. And just like the Assyrians and Babylonians will do. So, yeah. That's right. That's right. Well, I, I made the mistake of looking at our retirement account last night. <laughs> and now, and now we, we're going to be trusting God more in the future. <laughs> we should be very careful in interpreting, uh, in, in presuming to know what God is doing in current events when we don't have divine inspiration like Joel did, right? Um, and, and why don't we? Well, because we have God's word already that tells us what we need to do, right? Yeah. And like uh, Kevin was saying, what we need to be about doing is uh, growing in the grace of the Lord and sharing that hope that we have in Christ with others and, um, and encouraging others to grow as well. We can say something. Um, well, I I just want to maybe conclude uh, with a, um, a a verse that really spoke to me this week, I guess, um, and it's uh, chapter two, verse thirteen and fourteen a. <laughs> um, Tear your hearts, not just your clothes. He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in faithful love and covenant love. And he relents from sending disaster. This is the kind of language that God used when he talked to Moses on the mountain. This is how God self-identified to Moses, you know, 
And then the following verse, who knows, he may turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. And that's kind of what I'm looking for when, you know, all of this is over, whenever God decides. But I wonder what is the blessing that's going to be left behind um, when the Lord finally relents. Um, so we, you know, we, we acknowledge God to be um, provident, sovereign in all things. Um, he, you know, maybe he has brought this, he has allowed this, um, but he also will um, maybe turn from it and leave us a blessing. And I, I hope that our churches can uh, be a part of that blessing that kind of um, comes out as a result of this whole um, pandemic situation. If you all have any other hard questions, ask Pastor Chris. You know, <laughs> he went to seminary wow. too. <laughs> hey, we're in this together. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. thank you, guys. Enjoyed it very much tonight. All right. Next week is a very familiar story, Jonah. Yeah. Yeah, look forward That's to the Old Testament, All right? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I think so. Sounds good. Why don't I close this in prayer? Can I do that? Okay. Okay. Let's pray together. And Lord, we do thank you for our time together tonight in your word. Uh, Lord, your word is good. It is sufficient. Uh, Lord, your promises are true. You are faithful. Uh, you are sovereign. Uh, and you are a mighty judge. Uh, but you're also a savior. And Father, we thank you for saving us uh, through Jesus. We pray that we would be uh, self-reflective during this time, Lord, that we would uh, acknowledge our sin, Lord, that we would turn to you, Lord, that we would trust in you, that we would draw near to you uh, and uh, would grow uh, in your grace. Uh, Lord, thank you for being with us. Thank you for guiding us. Thank you for your spirit that resides in us. Lord, thank you for uh, speaking to us tonight. Lord, we, we go uh, acknowledging your greatness and your grace, and it's in the, G- the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.